0: turn, if you will, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to look at this paragraph, and we're just going to kind of break it down into two sections this morning, and kind of contemplate uh, whatever the the Spirit may be longing to say to us as a community, and longing to say to us as individuals. So turn to John chapter 1. We're going to read verses uh, 29 through 42. So if you would take a moment, um, now that you have gotten comfortable and settled in, would you stand with me? And we're going to just read this passage together out of gratitude for the fact that we are honored and privileged to have the scripture in our hands and in our own language. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and and noticed uh, them following him, he asked, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, come. And you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus, When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can gather here and sing our love for you to take a moment to rest, to be quiet in your presence if need be, and to just allow the atmosphere and the music, and most importantly, the presence of the body of Christ around us to to bring comfort and peace to those of us who are weary, to bring hope to those of us who are grieving, and to celebrate with those of us who are rejoicing in the same season that we may be in. We ask, Lord, as we open up the scriptures, as we humble ourselves, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would speak to us from the wisdom of our own hearts and that you would lead us in how you are calling us to respond to the truth that we discover as we dig into the treasures of this book. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning, there are kind of two sections here that I want to take a look at. There's basically a revelation and a response And if you think about it, that really is the entirety of the movement of our own spiritual formation and growth it is always a process of revelation and response. Now, sometimes in the West, we have the assumed that it is the amassing of information and mastering that information. But many of us who have made that our primary means of growth have come to realize through life and through pursuing the Lord and through living that that information is only great on good days. It is It is less helpful on days when our heart is broken. It is less helpful when we are gripped in the bondage of our sin. It is less helpful whenever we're suffering consequences of shame that keep us hidden from the Father or keep us withdrawing from the Father. So the information is helpful, but only if the information creates an atmosphere that gives birth to revelation. That, that is when the information has power. So all of our spiritual life is this cycle of revelation and response. Revelation and response. The normal Christian life is to have a deeper, more, more fuller, more, more um, profound revelation of Jesus in year 30 than we have in year 9. That is the normal response. That's how we should grow. So our pursuit of Jesus should always be resulting in revelation. And that revelation is always never, never ever fits our current belief system. We have a belief system and then Jesus enters into that like he was incarnated on earth and the revelation happens and the belief system crumbles. And that's okay because now we have this larger body of faith. And then we go through life. And then the new revelation, jesus a larger revelation, Jesus reveals himself into that belief system. And what happens? Another explosion. And then we go along. This is what we need for this season of life. And then once again, and so that is how our faith expands. Oftentimes, that revelation comes through living and suffering. The scriptures bear witness to this reality. And even the journey of Jesus himself bears, bears witness to this reality. So even in times of celebration, but really even most poignantly in times of suffering and difficulty, if we press through, he is faithful to bring forth his revelation in a way that a book or a person or an idea cannot. Because he's a person who's present. That revelation will then call for our response that is when the fruit is solidified it's not solidified just in our experiencing and acknowledging the revelation but then when we respond to it with action there is a place for contemplation learning asking questions but those don't result in the growth The growth happens when we begin to respond and rearrange our belief system and our life around the revelation that Jesus is bringing to our hearts and lives. And we see that pattern right here in this passage. The two primary movements in this paragraph are revelation and response. So let's take a moment and look at the idea of the revelation. What is the revelation? We see it particularly in the first half of that paragraph, verses 29 through 34, it's very simple and straightforward the revelation is that jesus is the lamb of god and then there are two implications tacked on to that revelation jesus is the lamb of god who one takes away the sin of the world and number two who baptizes or immerses us with the holy spirit The revelation is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who baptizes or immerses us with and in the Holy Spirit. Now let's take that idea and I just want to invite you into our living room this morning where there's no threats. We're not going to argue who's right and who's wrong. We're going to enter into this like we're pouring a cup of coffee and eating a danish and sitting back and just processing the implication of these ideas. Your conclusions may not be like my conclusions, and that is okay. All I want to do is for us to talk about it. And what's most importantly is not whether or not you agree with my conclusions, but whether or not you yourself enter into the process where you understand your convictions and conclusions. So the first thing that I want to do that might be challenging for us is what I've realized in my own journey and as I've walked with others. When we read verses like this, that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, somehow in our minds we translate, we retranslate it, and we read it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Christians. That's how we believe it. And therefore, we create this weird theology where we understand the grace of God for those of us who are Christians and believe the proper things about Jesus, but we act as though God still is in a position of antagonism toward unbelievers or the world. This is not what the scripture teaches us. There are no distinctions between God's love in the world and God's love in Christians. For one thing, Christianity as an organized religion didn't get codified until about, you know, a few hundred years after these events. And so these verses are not intended to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Christians. I think we take a moment to wrestle with the implications of what if it means what it says? What if he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And what if that means the one huge obstacle that we think separates us from fully enjoying God's love and acceptance of us is a lie. It is an illusion. It is a deception of separation. And God is waiting for us to wake up and to respond to the great work that he has already accomplished it doesn't become accomplished because I believe it. The work of Jesus is enormously larger than my ability to believe it. Jesus' work is bigger than my faith. And somehow we've introduced into this process that, in, that the effectiveness of what Jesus came to do is limited to our faith, to our belief, and to our recognition And I just want you to consider that maybe that's not accurate. Maybe God's posture to the world really is one of love and advocacy, not antagonism and accusation. There is a source of antagonism and accusation towards humanity. I'm just suggesting it's not the Father. And it's very important that we know from whose heart we are speaking when we posture ourselves or understand ourselves in terms of our mission to the rest of the world. It's a bold statement for me to make, so let's investigate and see if other scriptures bear witness to this idea. Well, let's look at John three sixteen and 17. If you're not familiar with this verse, don't worry, football season's coming along, you'll see it flash across the screen a few times. But let's take a moment and read this. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, that, who, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 4.42, this is the the, the, the crowd that's responding to the uh, witness that's being born through the, the woman at the well. And they respond to her testimony this way. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know this really is the Savior of the world. Not the Savior as Christians, but the Savior of of the world 1 John 2 1-2 through two. my little children I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous one he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for hours but also for those of the whole world 1 John 4:14 4, and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior now let me get something out of the way for those thinkers who are fidgeting in their seats right now. I am not saying that everyone in the world is having the same experience of God's grace. There is a reality of deception and unbelief that can cause someone experience of God's love to be darkened and they can fall under the deception of separation and therefore they're living as if the father doesn't love them. They're living as if the father isn't their advocate but their accuser. And I know that that exists. I'm not saying it's not that way but what I am saying is the way we bring the message for those folks is very important that we recognize are we speaking from the heart of the father or are we unwittingly speaking from the spirit of the adversary. Because the Father's posture toward the world is advocacy. The adversary's posture toward humanity is accusation. When we go with advocacy, we are representing the heart of Jesus. When we go with accusation, we are being the megaphone of the accuser. So it's really critically important that we understand God's posture toward the world isn't wringing his hands in anxiety and anger and frustration. I get that that's our reality, and if you're on social media, you even have a heightened degree of that anxiety and anger and frustration. This is not the heart of the Father. He loves and he is the advocate of the world, and he sent Jesus as a gift not to one particular faith system, but as a gift to humanity. So revelation number one is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation. The second part of that revelation is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who baptizes or immerses with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33. He says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me. The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I, don't, I know that we have diverse backgrounds. I inevitably was formed by my spiritual background. I am not a practicing, in terms of denominational Christianity, I'm not a practicing Pentecostal or Assemblies of God or maybe not even technically, it depends on your definition, charismatic. Although in my heart, I feel very much Pentecostal assembly and charismatic. There are lots of things about the cultures of my churches that I grew up on and that aren't for me. They don't fit their soul's armor. I don't condemn them. They obviously work for lots of other people just for whatever reason. They didn't work for me and God led me elsewhere. But I do think there is an underdeveloped understanding of the role of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of faith. The truth is healthy spirituality centered around Jesus can never be divorced by a vibrant awareness of the activity and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because this is the way Jesus is presented to us. And one of the primary, it was just as important aspect of Jesus' mission to take away the sin of the world, which we all are prone to talk about, but just as equally to not only take away the sin of the world, but he replaces it with something else. He takes away our sin and he immerses us in his spirit. This is the mission of Jesus. So it's not just ideological, it is existential. It is mystical. It is experiential because Jesus takes away our sin. And as we walk into that revelation, there's an even more beautiful gift. It's not just what you lost. It's what you've been given. And he immerses us. He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Look at some of the ways Jesus himself spoke about this aspect of his ministry. John 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Here's another one that is remarkable. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Let's look at that phrase one more time because it seems so counterintuitive. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Now, I made a mistake on the notes Um, because I had a note after that scripture and all the, the programmer was supposed to do is print the highlighted scripture. So the last sentence is not in the scripture and I'm not trying to sneak it in and write more of the Bible, okay? That was just my little preacher note commentary on the scripture, which is this, and it is remarkable. That passage, look what Jesus is saying. He is testifying that the spirit of Christ within me is of greater benefit than Jesus beside me. The spirit of Christ within me is of greater benefit than if Jesus were walking beside me. Have you ever entertained, had one of those thought experience where you thought, man, it just seems like I'm just jealous of these guys. It seems like it would have been so much easier if I was just alive when Jesus was walking the earth. If I could talk to him, if I could ask him questions, if I could physically walk with Jesus the way these folks got to physically walk with Jesus, what a beautiful and glorious experience you would be. And when Jesus says, yes, it would be, but it's a lesser experience than the one that's invite, that I'm inviting you into today. The greater experience of Jesus is when the spirit of Jesus, called the Holy Spirit, baptizes and immerses us, and we recognize that just like Mary, the Virgin Mary, Christ has chosen to be birthed in us as well. We are extended that same invitation and he says it's more glorious. The spirit of Christ within me is of greater benefit than the the person of Jesus beside me. Now I'm sure that was difficult for them to wrap their heads around as in some days it still is myself as well. However, I want to take that bold idea and I want to sit with it. I want to experience that. I want to bear the fruit of what it looks like to live from an awareness that I've been baptized in the spirit of God. I've been immersed and Christ is within me as the hope of glory and I have been filled with the Holy Spirit so there is always something of the supernatural about my life. The problem is that supernatural reality is intended to be expressed in the monotony and the mundane routines of life, not in the spectacular from from platforms or from becoming an influencer on social media. The Holy Spirit is there to empower me to be less unkind to the people around me. It is in these little moments that we see the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming our self-preoccupation so we live into a reality that we find joy in spending our lives on behalf of others. And then we look to Jesus. He modeled the exact same thing. Even down to the humility and the humanity to say, I know how you're calling me to lay down my life but it is difficult and it it is not always as fun as my Instagram follower influencers say that it is it's difficult and even Jesus himself said it's so difficult that I know that you're calling me to lay down my life to serve but if there's any other way I I don't want to drink this cup let it pass from me if possible and then that's not spiritual immaturity because right after that prayer comes the second half nevertheless not as I will but as you will and we we are called to follow Christ in that same path that we do so with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we are given from him. So the revelation is Jesus is the Lamb of God who, number one, takes away the sin of the world, and number two, immerses humanity in his spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Well, from that revelation, there then is a response on those people who are experiencing these spectacular events. We'll pick pick up their story in verse thirty-five and uh, through thirty-seven, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. These we're told finally that they're Andrew, and I guess I probably should have said this in an introduction to John. John is in the book, but he always refers to himself in the third person, and so he'll he'll say that it's someone else, like Andrew and another disciple. That other disciple is John. And uh, then he gets really bold by the end of his gospel. He still refers to him in, in the third person, but he's described as the disciple that Jesus loved. Look, like, it's his gospel. He can try, he can write himself that way if he wants to. Uh, that's certainly how I'm going to write my biography. <laughs> and so and so so John re- re- refers to himself in the third person. So this is this is Andrew and John are the ones that follow after him. Um, Uh, so uh, John was standing two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by he said look the Lamb of God the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus at the end of the day we are invited into an adventure of asking questions and learning about what it means to follow Jesus but we're not a follower of Jesus unless we start following Jesus believing in who Jesus was having great theology about what it meant that he came and he was incarnated and he died on the cross and he overcame sin in the grave and he was resurrected believing those things don't make us a follower of Jesus because you can believe those things and still not follow Jesus and then then we just, and even when we hear statements like that what we want to do with that is then go, hmm, then are we really saved? And will we really go to heaven? Or will we? I don't know. I haven't been dead yet. When I do, I'll let you know what I find out. But you'll be dead too, so you'll already know. I'm not talking about that. All I am saying is that we still have to face the reality, especially once you disconnect or not disconnect, when you expand your theology beyond the afterlife and recognize that Jesus said these things so that they could be lived while we're alive, not when we fly away to heaven. So it's important to understand, yes, you may be a Christian. Maybe you go to church. Maybe you believe all the theology. But at the end of the day, when your head hits the pillow, what you have to ask yourself before your heavenly father is, did you follow him today? Because believing in his work is not the same thing as being his follower. These people heard and they began to follow. And what's great about the Gospels is how imperfectly and how much they stumble in that following. But but the message you get is imperfect stumbling in following Jesus is superior than perfect ideas about Jesus that don't bear the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in our life. That's not where the power is. It is in our awkward fumbling, bumbling pursuit of Jesus that we are transformed. So they heard and they followed him. As Jesus is revealed, John and Andrew become curious. That's it. And and what their response reminds us is you don't have to, if you're, you're bearing witness to Jesus doesn't have to include demanding a response to the person you're talking to. Because it's okay that there's a gap you know, this, this weird thing where we take unbelievers and put them in this high-pressured situation and say, in this moment, you've got to decide because if you don't, when you leave here, you get hit by a bus and you would have missed your opportunity. Where is anything like that in the scripture? And if it's not in the scripture, how did it become such a predominant way that we do things? Fear is great for producing results, but it's terrible for creating disciples. And we have seen this reality. If you, well, this is a rant, I need to get off of it, but I was fascinated by mass evangelism growing up. It's exactly what I wanted to do. But you read the history of mass evangelism and all we see are the highlights. But when you read that, even into the ministry of Billy Graham, the massive crisis that they experience because they are producing thousands of believers and none and, and very few of them are actually following Jesus. So it is worth questioning whether or not that is the best ordained means from God for creating followers of him. And so, uh, so, so we, there's this space here for Andrew and John to just ask questions, to seek, to find out where he's staying, maybe enjoy some well-done fish, sit around a campfire, and slowly become enamored with the one who will become the love of their lives. That's where transformation happens. So there's space. They get to ask questions. They get to seek. This echoes our own journey of faith. It is okay to take your time and ask questions before you enter into this personal affirmation of your own experience of grace and your own experience of life. In fact, my deep prayer is that we become a community that creates very safe space for those questions to be asked. No promise that you're going to get the answers. And the best we're going to be able to do is give you the answers that have been born through our own process of revelation and response. Hopefully they will encourage you, but at the end of the day, all we can do is bear witness to our experience and invite you to do the same, but you will have to walk your own path of revelation and response. Then we move on and we see that this deepens. In fact, what I love about this next part is it just seems like really awkward. Like what Jesus is asking and what they reply just doesn't seem to really fit. And it's almost like they're at a loss for words and they just come up with something to say. So when Jesus turned to notice him following him, verse 38, he asked them, what are you looking for? Uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? This is what they replied. This is a profound question from Jesus. What are you looking for? We want to know where you're hanging your hat tonight. And so then there is this powerful response from Jesus. And and it's not just a powerful response from Jesus, but just even honoring the literary work that John put together, the way he uses this dialogue to foreshadow all that is to come, not only for their lives, but also to foreshadow throughout centuries through reading the pages of this book, this same invitation comes to you and me this morning on October 15th, 2023. And he simply says, come and you'll see. So again, he doesn't answer them with information. He answers them with an invitation to revelation. And so they respond. So they went where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two, who heard John, and John followed him. And, he, and uh, he first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah and he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus said, You're Simon, son of John, but you'll call, you will be called Cephas. So here, we, have, we can some, in some ways say it's one of the first, earliest examples of evangelism. Someone met Jesus. They stayed with Jesus. They were so moved by the revelation and experience of Jesus, they went and found a loved one and said, I've found Jesus, you should come too and then that loved one comes to the presence of Jesus themselves and now is no longer no longer on a journey that's rooted in the witnesses testimony but it now is becoming their own journey and then Jesus encounters uh, and then Peter encounters Jesus in such a profound way that Jesus calls forth the real identity of who Peter was even though cephas peter means rock and his character doesn't display stability And yet Jesus calls it forth from him, even though he still has to walk on a journey of immaturity before he'll truly be a rock. But from the very beginning, day one, Jesus invites him and he sees who Simon is intended to be long before Simon is able to see it for himself. And so this witness was a success. So he says, what are you looking for? This this question is more than just information. This is the essential call to discipleship. Too many of us came to Jesus and we were told why we ought to be coming to Jesus. And that's fine. I'm not saying God isn't in that. I'm not saying that that's not enough to start the journey. But eventually, you've got to set aside what other people told you you were supposed to come to Jesus for. And you're going to ask your own heart, what are you looking for? Right now this morning, if you're following Jesus, is there anticipation in your heart and are you self-aware of what you are seeking from him? Or has the routine of the practice of religion made you apathetic about that pursuit? What are you looking for? And then he has this invitation, come and see it's an open invitation to experience his life, his teachings, and his mission. And it travels through time to us this morning. He invites us to come and see. Now then, let's look how witnessing works. We are not told that Andrew then read a book on how to effectively answer the skeptic's questions before he bore witness to the Savior. That's not what it said. doesn't say that he went to a weekend seminar. He doesn't say that he organized folks to come together for a little fish and whatever they drank and then go knocking on houses to... I am not saying that it's not helpful to go through study and have some information and some awareness of people's questions. I think that's good because a lot of times those are questions that just come from the ache of all of humanity. But I think about my faith and my journey and how much guilt was placed upon us to try to make us witnesses. Well, you just felt low if you weren't a very good one. And then we go through classes and we have techniques that we learn to answer. I think I've told you about it. One of my favorite books on how to be a witness for Christ said that whenever you are speaking to a prospect, if they're hesitant, it says to reach out and touch their shoulder and apply a little pressure because often that will break down people's intellectual resistance and they'll yield. I can't say that that's the way of the spirit. I don't know if pressure on the shoulder and intimidation is how we're supposed to be witnesses. But you know what? A beloved who's become a fiance never has to be trained to announce the good news that they are betrothed. They don't have to read a book. They don't have to have a class. It flows spontaneously from the love alive in their heart. Would it not be interesting if that was the only criteria we had for becoming a witness? Not that you're trained and you're given information to parrot, but that you are so in love by the transforming presence of the mercy and grace of Jesus in your own life, that it flows out of you as an announcement of joy because of how it has impacted you. This, my friends, is effective witness. Andrew just, he didn't come with a lot of theology, he just comes to Peter and said I found him, we found him we found the Christ and he brings Peter to Jesus and when Peter is in the presence of Jesus Jesus is an effective witness to bring him across that line from doubt to faith the key thing is that we see here is that Andrew after spending time with Jesus goes and he tells his brother My friends, only those who give themselves to the delightful and difficult work of following Jesus can effectively be his witnesses. I didn't say you couldn't be a witness, but that's the only way to be an effective witness for Christ. To effectively become a witness for Jesus, we must first become faithful followers of him. We can be his witnesses only when we have known both the joy and the difficulty of following Jesus. That is where there's power in our story because that's where our story intersects and becomes the universal story of humanity. Is it a life filled with joy and blessings and celebration? Yes. Does all of that protect you from disappointment, heartache, and feeling like there are seasons where the Father himself is crushing you as if you were underneath a boulder? No, you're not protected from those. You still have to walk through those. There's no formula that gets you out of the human experience. There is only the revelation that there is the creator living in you that walks through the crushing with you. And whether or not your theology says that suffering is caused by him or that suffering is caused by the devil or that suffering is caused by my trauma and my psychosis or my, 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 my neuroses whatever excuse you're going to give, it doesn't change the fact that it hurts and answers don't take the pain away. But connection with the body of Christ and awareness of the presence of Jesus heals the pain so that we can arise from it and keep on moving in the journey. And in fact, that suffering also becomes another invitation of revelation and response. So, What do we make of this? As we get ready to come to the Lord's table in communion, I want to ask a few questions. Three, to be exact. Number one, has the revelation of Jesus captivated your soul? Where are you in that pursuit? Have you been a skeptic for too long and it's time to just begin to follow? Or did you follow Jesus and then the stuff of life lulled you to sleep? And maybe it's time to wake up and recommit. So today, what is your response to Jesus? Let's set aside all the memorials of all the spiritual experiences of the past and ask ourselves, what is our response today? Do you need just simply to rest and express gratitude for what he's done for you? There's no better place to do that than at the Lord's table. But maybe... There's some conviction, and it's time to re-engage the pursuit. Maybe you needed to take a break. Maybe you needed to heal. Maybe you needed to set on the sidelines and unravel toxic theology. That's okay. But at some point, we have to recognize that is not the intended end of our journey. We are called to work through those things and to re-engage. Maybe it's time to re-engage. Um, <clears throat> Maybe it's time to re-engage the pursuit or maybe it's a different situation. Maybe you fell in love with Jesus but then got distracted by all the demands of the religion that has eventually been organized in his name. And I'm grateful for that religion because it certainly can carry the revelation of Jesus. I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is following the precepts of Christianity is not the same thing as following Jesus. Maybe... It's time to read Jesus your faith, to allow the ideologies and the institution to be, take their proper place below the Savior. And they can be used to exalt him in your life for sure, but they are not the goal. They're simply tools to continue to center our faith and our spirituality around the revelation of Jesus and the desire to follow after him. And then finally, there's a third category, those of you who have a burden to bear witness to the Lord it is critical for all of us and I am not speaking from a stage to seats I have certainly gone through this process as well and continue to walk through it but it is bearing witness to Jesus is not representing the ideas that have flown from the institution that was raised in his name those are two different things And it's really important that we understand the difference between whether or not we're just selling Jesus as a representative or we're bearing witness to him because of the effect that following Jesus is having on our lives today. That is where there is power. And you only access it through the brokenness of your humanity and letting Jesus sit with you in that. And and as you begin to follow Jesus, and then you don't have to have a class. You don't have to memorize answers. You know why? Because the spirit of Christ, the aroma of Christ flows from your soul. And you may not have all the answers at your fingertips, but you do have the Holy Spirit at your heart tip. He's right there. And the wisdom of the spirit will provide all that you need as you seek to be a faithful witness. To Jesus. Again, not being anti intellectual, not saying read your um, apologetics, all that stuff, that's great. I am just saying at the end of the day, the power is not in the information, but the revelation that comes from following Jesus. So, are you a witness or a representative? When sharing our faith feels forced and guilt inducing, we don't promote true witnesses for Christ. Instead, we create salespeople promoting an ideology, and here's the kicker, that they may or may not actually believe in. We're just obligated to peddle it. That's not a powerful witness. Wrestling with the reality, living it, and walking into both the blessings and the assurances and the questions. That's what makes us powerful witnesses to other human beings who are also in this thing called the human experience. Our focus must be on becoming individuals who embody God's love by living from an awareness of the living Christ within.